if something were to happen, a lawsuit or fraud or whatever, then a resident or another investor or the bank can't pursue your personal assets. They can only go so far as to take the money that you had invested in the deal, but they can't go further than that. Whereas for being on the GP side, they can go further than that. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing. Enjoy this episode. And for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hello, best of your listeners, and welcome back to the Actively Passive Investing Show. As always, Theo Hicks and Travis Watts. Travis, how are you doing today? Theo, I'm doing great. Thrilled to be here. So today we are going to provide you with another contrarian perspective. So last week we went through some of the reasons why someone might elect not to passively invest and decide to actively invest instead. And today we are going to talk about some of the things that can go wrong when investing in syndications. So as always, before we hop in to these reasons, Travis is going to give a little bit of background on why we are talking about this today. Sure. I think the main goal here is to scare everybody off and make sure no one ever (laughs) wants to invest in syndications. And secondarily, it's good to give the alternative perspective, right? Because things aren't just black and white, right or wrong, good or bad in terms of investing anyway. There's people, as we've said many times, that make money doing a lot of different things. So we just kind of want to give the other side of the coin here and share some experiences, some stories that I have specifically as a limited partner where things didn't quite go as planned. And I just want to paint that picture of what that might look like and how that works. So again, there's no perfect investment and there's risks and everything. So that's why we're doing these shows. And hopefully the next show will do a little more positive spin on something. But to your point, Theo, the back-to-backs have, have been this contrarian point of view. So happy to jump into our first topic here. Did you have anything you wanted to add before we get rolling? Yeah, I'm not so sure if we've talked about this before, but I know we've talked about qualifying the sponsor, the GP before passively investing. And one of the questions that we're going to want to ask is about a time something went wrong or something Hmm. bad happened, a deal didn't go the way they thought it was going to happen and how they handled that situation. It's a really good question because it can indicate experience and transparency slash trust. So they say nothing's ever gone wrong, then they might not have done that many deals or they're lying to you. So some of these things are more scenario-based. Other ones are just high level, what can go wrong in syndications. But it's just keeping in mind that when you're speaking with sponsors, as Travis said, it's kind of good to get an understanding of if they're going to be able to handle if something were to go wrong. Exactly. Great point. 
Some we talk about all the time on this show are the three primary areas of risk, which would be the deal, the market, and the team. So that's kind of going to be the theme for what I go through here and what you go through as well. I also want to point out a few things we've never talked about before. Theo, I'll let you handle that after I start this first segment and just some alternative points of view on a couple of things. So what I want to start with is just first and foremost, and just the blunt right to the point, and that's just losing money. Everybody's fear, right? Who don't want to lose money. How do I not lose money? Warren Buffett's number one rule, don't lose money. So yes, it's possible to lose money when you're investing. It doesn't matter what you're investing in. There's always a risk to that. So maybe unlikely, but it is certainly something to put in your mind as you go through the process. So first and foremost, this is the best thing I've come up with myself, diversification. So that means diversify among different operators that you work with, different general partners. That means diversify among different asset types. You've got multifamily and self-storage and industrial and office and hospitality. So lots to choose from. Maybe choose a few there that you could kind of trickle some money into as you go along. You could also diversify in terms of active and you do a couple deals actively, but then you do a couple limited partnerships passively. And then also geographic areas. You can imagine if you had your entire portfolio, like I used to have in one little 30 mile radius, well, Imagine that 30-mile radius being Miami and a hurricane comes through. There's obvious risks to having all your eggs in one basket in one geographic location. So that is a beautiful thing about being a passive investor. One of the primary reasons I shifted gears to go that direction is I could place capital in multiple states nationwide with very experienced, reputable operators. And I'm just so grateful (laughs) that this stuff exists because I was getting so anxious and paranoid having all my net worth, all my assets and one asset class, one geographic area. And it was freaking me out. This was back in 2013, 14, 15, before I shifted gears. So the other thing I want to address is Some folks bring up just fraud or Ponzi schemes. We all know the Bernie Madoffs or the Enron scandals and things like this. My best solution to that is always, always, always do your due diligence. You can only do what you can do. The crazy part about stuff like that is if you'd invested with Bernie Madoff before that whole scandal unfolded in the Great Recession, you could have ran a background check and it would have come up clean. He had a positive reputation in the industry. He was a board member or whatever he was, a chairman of the NASDAQ. This is a very reputable firm, reputable guy, no criminal history, et cetera. And he was running mostly a legitimate business up until he decided to do this one particular fund that ended up being this massive Ponzi scheme. But read the PPMs, leverage attorneys, leverage other people in your network to get second and third opinions ask for investor referrals, network with other people, ask people who they invest with and what their experience has been. This is all parts of due diligence and everybody does it a little bit differently. And then last but not least, again, diversify. There were folks that put nearly everything they owned and had with Bernie Madoff. And then there were folks that allocated 100K that direction, but also had 10 million over here. Well, those people did just fine. (laughs) relatively speaking. So diversification, I can't say it enough. And then as far as the deal itself, 
that was about the team. And we talked a little bit about markets and geographic stuff. But as far as the deal, ask for a stress test or a sensitivity analysis. Again, to your point, Theo, ask the operators what could go wrong, what has gone wrong, and really get into the deal. You don't have to get into analysis paralysis, but know what the break-even occupancy is, know what kind of debt terms are going on this, know if it's conservatively underwritten. If you're buying it at a five cap, we've talked about this before, hopefully the projected exit cap is a higher number. That's not because you want that to happen. That's because that's a conservative underwriting best practice. So things like this, do you have floating interest rates? Do you have locked fixed interest rates? If they're floating, is the GP buying a cap for them? There's so many things I could go on and on, but do your due diligence on the deal itself, obviously. But if you get a reputable general partner or sponsorship team with a track record and experience, they're probably going to be doing hopefully a good deal, but you still want to know about the deal. It could just be something that was missed or overlooked or something that you personally don't agree with as part of your own criteria. So I would advise everyone to pass. <laughs> if you're not feeling good about the deal itself, even with a good operator, there'll be other deals just passed. So those are some thoughts on just losing money. A lot of questions that come up, especially for new investors in the space about Ponzi schemes and fraud. And I'll be the first to admit, I was very skeptical in 2015 when I started investing in these asset types because I just didn't know what is fear all about? It's fear of the unknown. <laughs> and so that's why we're here to educate and share some ideas on that. So I'll stop my rant there. I'll turn it over to you, Theo, for your segment here. Yeah. Before I go into my segment, as Travis mentioned, there's a lot that goes into addressing the risk points of the deal, the team, in the market. We're going to go into the team, in the market, a little more detail in this episode, but Travis and I did three separate episodes, one each focusing on those risk points. So how to bet the deal, how to bet the market, how to bet the sponsor on actively passive. There, I think one of them was almost 50 minutes long. So all those different questions that you want to ask to determine how risky the team is, how risky the deal is, how risky the market is. We went into a lot of detail in those episodes. So definitely check those out. So in addition to losing money, it is also possible to lose your passive investor protection. So again, we're not securities attorneys or real estate attorneys, but generally speaking, when you're looking at the liability for these types of deals, the LPs have limited liability, which means that if something were to happen, a lawsuit or fraud or whatever, then a resident or another investor or the bank can't pursue your personal assets. They can only go so far as to take the money that you had invested in the deal, but they can't go further than that. Whereas for being on the GP side, they can go further than that. So when you're thinking about passive investing, it's technically possible to be more of a hybrid version where you're bringing money to the deal, but you have some other role in the deal. Maybe you're signing on a loan. Maybe you're responsible for certain aspects of the business plan. And then you're on the actual general partnership and you don't have that same level of protection as the limited partners. So the solution to that was just making sure that you are actually the limited partner so that if something were to happen, as Travis mentioned, that you lose money, you're just losing the money you had in that deal and your other assets aren't exposed in that lawsuit. Exactly. Now, those are great points. And again, that's one of the huge selling points to me anyway, perhaps is a little more sophisticated conversation, but liability is huge. 
It's so huge. And I won't mention his name, but there's a very well-known syndicator out there in the space that started first in single family homes and moved into multifamily after the great recession. Why did he do that? He lost everything. And then some, he was personally liable for more than what he had invested in those properties. All the banks and creditors were coming after this guy individually after that. And for those that know from a real estate perspective, the Donald Trump story back when he was whatever it was, an incredible amount of money, I want to say over $100 million in debt at one point underwater, no equity in the properties, plus him personally being responsible for that level of debt. So as a limited partner, say I go put $50,000 into a deal and everything in the world goes wrong and lawsuits fly and the world just ends. The max loss I'm looking at is 50K and I don't have to worry about someone's coming after my personal bank accounts, my car, my wife, et cetera. <laughs> it's all sheltered there. So anyway, not to go too long on that, but that's a big deal. So hopefully that makes sense to everybody listening. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless, from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever. And remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one -on -one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. The other thing I want to talk about that not a lot of people talk about is transparency and communication risk. There is definitely risk in communication and reporting of financials. That's something that, again, isn't talked about very much, but think about it like this. As a limited partner, I'm essentially trusting a general partner to manage my money, in most cases in an unlicensed capacity, meaning they don't hold any kind of financial licenses for the most part. So that's a big risk. And I have to trust that they're going to be communicating with me on a monthly or a quarterly or a semi-annually basis, that they're going to be sending me financial reports that are accurate and valid. And there's a lot of trust. And as you operate 
most of these syndications are operated in the 506B and 506C land. So you're not held to the same reporting requirements as publicly traded companies are that are on the stock market. So again, you have to trust that audits are being completed. The numbers you're looking at are real and things like that. So what you want to do, the solution here is again, back to due diligence, back to reputation and track record and background checks and all these kinds of things. But additionally, you want to ask what kind of reporting do you give to your investors? What kind of frequency is that on? Can you send me an example of a monthly update that you recently sent out? Can you send me an example of the quarterly financials that you send to your investors? Things like this. And every operator should be able to accommodate to that. But do recognize too that I partnered with a group years ago and I didn't realize this because I didn't ask the questions as part of my due diligence. They didn't do financial reporting. It was like the craziest thing. And they just didn't feel an obligation to do so. And there was a few investors that had kind of got on them about this and they just wouldn't disclose. Now, I'm not saying that they're fraudulent or anything like that. I was an investor for years with them. I got out of the deal successfully unscathed and all that, but it was kind of a worrisome point to kind of think about sometimes. Why is this happening? Why can't I get the financials? And they had their reasons and I don't remember all the details. It wasn't a huge thing, but just recognize that it may not be standard for the group you're working with to do this in the first place. So make sure if that's important to you, that you ask the questions up front. So that's all I wanted to make on that. I'll turn it over to you, Theo. Yeah, I would say just to add to that, another reason why this communication is a risk is that if something were to go wrong and they aren't transparent, even though you're a past investor, you can't really control how they react to what goes wrong. But the best sponsors, if something were to happen, they will let you know in that next email update, and then they'll have a solution in place for what they're doing to fix that problem. But what happens if something goes wrong and you only get quarterly updates or something's happening in the financials and they aren't sending you the financials or something weird is going on with the returns, which I think you might go into in a second, but something were to go wrong and you don't know that it's happening until months later or maybe a year later. And maybe you've already reinvested in a couple more deals, right? So the sooner you know something is wrong and that they're addressing the problem, the better. Because I think the big risk here is that you invest with them again or just the unknown of not necessarily knowing why you aren't getting your distribution or why are they sending financials for the first four quarters? And then all of a sudden this next quarter, they stop sending financials or stop setting up. I've heard stories of communications just completely stopping and not being able to get in touch with the people again. So there's a lot of horror stories that can go wrong if they're not communicating properly, which kind of brings me to the next risk or something that can go wrong is that you invest with a bad sponsor that you either didn't know how to qualify initially or they misrepresented themselves to you. So we already did a really long show about the questions to ask to analyze their track record, but basically you want to know that they are an expert in what they're doing. And you also want to know, which is really big, is what their role actually is in the deal. Sure, they could be a GP, but are they the main GP? Are they the person who's responsible for the asset management, buying the deal, investor relations, or is it a co-GP situation where they just raise money and then maybe have another smaller role in the deal, but there's someone else that's more in control because it's bad to invest with someone like that, but you want to know who you're investing with. And someone might say that they control 
a billion dollars in real estate or a hundred million dollars in real estate, but it's not actually their company that controls it. A couple other questions to think about is do they actually specialize in that particular niche or are they kind of just all over the place and focus on multiple asset classes that Travis mentioned earlier, better to focus on one than, than multiple. How many deals have their business done in the past taken full cycle, which is also important. So not just bought and then held, but have they actually sold a deal and then returned your initial capital plus the return. So they have true full cycle return projections, full cycle actuals. And you can compare those two and see how accurate their underwriting was, how accurate their assumptions were. Something else that you want to know too, that can indicate that you're investing with a, a strong team is if their company is vertically integrated, which means that in addition to the GP they have brought as much as possible in-house as possible. Asset management, acquisition, underwriting analysts, property management companies, in-house compliance people, basically a full-fledged company where everything is in-house as opposed to working with third parties. Again, nothing objectively wrong with working with third parties, but there's an extra level of alignment of interest when it's in-house and it's actually your company who's managing the property as opposed to another company who's managing thousands of properties for other people and they get paid based off of a very small percentage of the rent and they really just make money by managing a bunch of properties. And if they lose you or the revenue drops by 20%, it's not really affecting their company at all. Whereas if your property management company that works for you is not doing what you want them to do, there's obviously a much bigger problem there. So again, there's a lot more that goes into this, but one other thing as well that I just thought of, are they guaranteeing a return? <laughs> Right, That's another pretty big red flag because as Travis mentioned, his first point is possible to lose money. There's no guaranteed anything in investing at all. So if you've got a GP who's guaranteeing you say a 12% return on your investment year after year, that is an indication that something's probably going to go wrong. It's possible that they get 12% and that's great, but eventually they're probably not going to hit that 12% number. And then what are you going to do? Are you going to accept the lower number? Maybe people start suing this GP and then your capital's at risk. So overall, just make sure you're investing with someone who's experienced. The more experienced they are, the better track record they have, the less likely there is something to go wrong. Exactly. I've shared the story before and I won't go into the details here, but basically I partnered actually with a couple groups that didn't have the track record or experience. One, I knew that for sure. The other was interesting. <laughs> we'll say that. But the risk ended up being that, no, I didn't lose money and no, they weren't a fraud or anything like this. But what the pro forma had projected was about a 12% cash flow. And we ended up with near half of that and near half the total IRR when it all came said and done. And there's a lot of hiccups and road bumps along the way. So it was a risk nonetheless. And that's how that resulted. And I would say, just to be realistic, in this industry, I would say that's probably the most common type of scenario that you're going to encounter is you're going to look at a pro forma and it's going to look shiny and bright and amazing and double your money in five years and whatever, that kind of stuff. And the reality is it's going to be maybe 20, 30% less than that, that you end up with. I wouldn't really complain about that because it's still a solid return, but 
it may not be what you hope for. So doing all these things we're talking about puts you in the best position to work with the best operators to have the best chance of actually achieving or overachieving what those pro formas are all about. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group of eight to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at BEC2022.com. That's BEC2022.com. Last thing I want to talk about really in terms of this episode is the distribution frequency risk. So I just talked a few minutes ago about communication frequency, and now I'm talking about distribution frequency. This is something I've highlighted on previous episodes real lightly, but I wanted to paint the picture with actual numbers to explain a concept really quick. So distributions should be part of your criteria as an investor. Do you want monthly distributions? That's payouts from your investments, quarterly, semi-annually, or maybe you're doing new development and you say, I don't really care about distributions. It gets built when it gets built. It sells when it sells. It's in my IRA. And whether that's in two years or 10 years, I could care less. Everybody's different, but just know your comfort level and your risk tolerance here. And what I want to share is, Monthly distributions are part of my personal criteria. That doesn't mean every single deal that I've ever done is monthly. So 80% are, 20% are not. But it allows me to turn over my capital more quickly. For anyone that's ever listened to Robert Kiyosaki actually talk in depth about investing, his whole thing is, how soon do I get my capital back? It's the velocity of capital. He puts money in a project and then he's trying to get it back either through refinancing or through cash flow as quickly as possible so that he limits his risk in the deal. Because if you put 100K in and you get 100K back, but you're still holding the asset, you then have what he calls an infinite return, or you can now take that 100K and put it somewhere else in another deal and do the same thing again. So here's the example. Let's say I had $250,000 to invest. And let's say I parked it into a deal that achieves a 10% annualized return, just to use some simple example purpose numbers. That means I'm getting $25,000 each year in cash flow. So the way I look at that is I can then take $25,000 each year and I could potentially go do another deal with that money. A, I got the money back in a sense, right? It wasn't my initial capital, but still I put in 250 and I got 25K back in one year. So if you fast forward four years, that's $100,000, right? 25K a year coming back to me and I keep parking that into new deals. So now I have four other deals that I'm invested in for example purposes. Well, that means at the end of four years, I only have 150,000 at risk in that initial deal because I had put in 250 and I got 100K back over a four-year period. So I've now reduced my amount of risk in that particular deal. That's why I like monthly distributions and cash flowing assets. So let's say I did a new development deal where it's going to take four years to build, develop, sell, convert, whatever, till I get my money back. Well, I put 250K in, but I still have 250,000 at risk for the entire period of four years. 
because I didn't get any cash flow off of that. I didn't have any kind of refinance or return of capital or anything like that. So there's one reason why among many that new development entails a higher amount of risk, at least in my opinion, it does. So something to think about in terms of your distribution frequency. Some people could care less about monthly versus quarterly. That's not as big of a deal. But if you're talking about no distributions in an investment where it's all on the back end versus monthly or quarterly, that can be a huge game changer in terms of risk. So just something I wanted to point out in a little more detail. I know I'm a very visual guy, so hopefully that made sense audibly, if that's a word. But (laughs) anyway, just want to share that. I think that's an app, audibly. Okay, there you go, (laughs) whatever. That's a really good point. Getting your capital to to work for you sooner. So the last point, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Travis has already mentioned this, and we've got a very long show diving deep on how to bet the market. But another way a syndication could go wrong is by investing in a bad market. So some of the factors that you want to look at to make sure that you are investing in a good market would be the diversified employment. So making sure that no one job industry dominates the market. A good number is 20 to 25% for that top industry. So if you're investing in a market and 90% of the jobs are automotive or something and that industry would take a hit, well, then that entire market unemployment rate is going to go up. It's going to affect the rental rates for whatever you're investing in. Population growth, obviously you want to invest in a market that's growing because the population are the customers of the apartment or whatever you're investing in. Looking at big Fortune 500 companies or even smaller companies relocating to the area. You've got these massive billion dollar companies that have these arms that are doing all this massive research determining where to move next. And so if they're deciding to move to a market they have to see something, whether it's something that's happening now or in the future. And there's something else too that isn't really stressed a lot, but the political environment in that particular market. So you've got some places that are very landlord friendly and other places that are very tenant friendly, which means that it's kind of based off of the amount of rights that the tenant has when it comes to how long it takes to do evictions and late payments and things like that. So obviously the more tenant friendly a market, the more risk there is. And then also taxes is a big thing too. You can be just one neighborhood over and the taxes rate could be much higher, even though the rents might be pretty close if you're in one county or the other. I live in Chicago. And so right when you leave Cook County, the taxes drop by like 50%. Now, one thing that you kind of want to keep in mind when you are analyzing new deals when it comes to the market, particularly rent growth, for example, right? So you want to invest in a market that has experienced rent growth and is projected or forecast to experience rent growth, but you also don't want the GPs to assume that whatever the historical rent growth has been or the forecasted rent growth is going to be is what is going to happen at their property. Right now is a really good example because when you look at year-over-year rent growth for some cities, I went down 10, I think in San Francisco, it might have been 23% or something crazy like that. So imagine if you were investing in San Francisco and they're projecting 5% rent growth because that's what happened every single year. And they actually assumed a 5% and went down by 23%. Or on the flip side, a place like Boise, it's like why you want to have this conservative underwriting because let's say you're investing in Boise, they forecasted rents going up by 3%, you assume 2%, but then rents go up by 10 plus percent. So the rent growth assumption, as well as these other assumptions you're making based off of forecasts, keep in mind that these are important, but it shouldn't be the only reason why you invest in a deal, right? You shouldn't only invest in a deal because the population is expected to double in the next 10 years because 
who knows that's actually going to happen. It's just kind of like a cherry on top. Whereas other things like being tenant friendly and landlord friendly or making these insane rent growth projections are a little bit more important and could potentially be a deal breaker because it's a sign that something is probably going to go wrong in the future. Great thoughts, Theo. Let's bring it home. I got a final thought here. From a high level, there's no perfect investment type. There's pros, there's cons, there's risks and everything as we've talked about over and over. So it's just my personal opinion, my personal experience that I prefer mostly investing in these private placement syndications, a lot in multifamily. But again, that's just based off my own self-study, my own experience, people I've networked with, just what's happened in my life. So what's really important is what's right for you. And this could be a tiny segment in your portfolio for diversification purposes, taking a little out of the stock market to put elsewhere, or it could be like me where it's your primary focus. So always do your highest and best, always enjoy what you do, always understand what you're investing in. And of course, always seek your licensed advice from attorneys, CPAs and other. So that's all I got. Yeah, I would say my final advice is that you as a passive investor have a lot of control over what you invest in. So that means that you also have a lot of control over making sure you're not investing in something that can go wrong. So we gave a lot of examples of ways that can go wrong outside of the Ponzi scheme example that Travis gave in the beginning, which have been very difficult to identify. Do your research and have a strong understanding of how what you're investing in works, right? So if you don't understand, if you're unclear, then maybe wait and invest in what you do know so that you understand how to identify if the sponsor is not properly addressing those three risk points. So it's not saying that you should only invest in one particular thing, right? Diversity is important, but make sure you understand what it is you're going to invest in. If you're transitioning to self-storage, learn and understand how self-storage works rather than just jumping in because of a, a nice investment summary that told you that you're going to double your money in say five years. Those are my final thoughts. Travis, as always, thank you for joining us today. Best ever listeners, thank you for listening. Have a best ever day and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Theo. Thanks, everybody.